0: Welcome to episode 200 with my guest Clint Millarchuk. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads—from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, join the forum, read a blog, read a guest blog, uh, fill out a survey, see how other people filled out surveys uh, sharing their deepest, darkest secrets, their struggles. Um, You can support the show there. You can buy a t-shirt. You can buy a coffee mug. Um, And don't forget to use the search box. To search for episodes that cover certain, uh, issues, um, or blogs that cover certain issues. So, for instance, if you're interested in stuff that has to do with bipolar, type in bipolar in the, uh, in the search box and, uh, maybe an episode will come up that'll, that'll help you. Or maybe it'll aggravate you and you'll be done with the show forever. Hmm. Maybe that'll happen. And then maybe you can go fuck yourself. Why? Why three minutes in? Have I pitted you against me, you, the kind listener who who has given me positive feedback, kept me going for two hundred episodes? Why do I drop the gloves? Maybe because our guest is Clint Malarchuk, and uh, i'm afraid that I'm, I'm that I need to be tough in case Clint listens. I was so happy that uh, we were able to get Clint for this episode. I had contacted him uh, on my own. Uh, after i saw the uh, 30 for 30 uh, documentary short on him um and uh thank god the rendezvous with madness film festival in toronto arranged for me to go up there and record him um let's see what on my way there you know i'm going through customs in canada and um <laughs> i shared this i shared this before i brought clint out with the with the the audience, but it, it, for some reason, it didn't, didn't record, but I'll, I'll share it with you. So I'm waiting to go through customs and, um, they asked me, uh, what is the nature of your business? And I said, well, I'm up here to do a live recording of a podcast. I'm a podcaster. And they said, oh, what is your, what's your podcast about? And I was like, I suddenly, I just kind of froze and I was like, I talk about being crazy. <laughs> And other people, other crazy people come see me and we bond over how we often want to die or, I don't know, poke someone in the eyes. (laughs) Can you let me into Canada? (laughs) And I'm so lucky that I don't have to deal with the stigma of mental illness because of the industry that I'm in and the city that I live in. But I got just a little bit of taste because I was suddenly embarrassed to have mental illness in that moment with that with that customs guy. And um and I was honestly afraid that it was that I was gonna have to go into a room and be questioned, that they would think that I was dangerous. And um fortunately they didn't, but it was uh it was funny and uh, kind of unsettling at the same time maybe that's the funniest stuff is the the stuff that's unsettling on a on a certain degree i have to share this with you um a kid uh, somebody tweeted this 13 year old kid uh had said he heard somebody say to somebody else why do you have depression you have so much good stuff in your life and this kid said well that's like saying to somebody why do you have asthma there's so much air
1: <laughs> fucking
0: genius man teenagers they are not worthless, you teens out there. You are not worthless. Um, God, you remember when you were a teenager and you would just look at, at people that were like over 30 and just think, I will never be like you. I am so much smarter than you. And maybe some of them are. Um, what else did I want to share? <laughs> I wanted to share this with you. I was playing hockey the other night and it's against this team that we always get into some type of scuffle with. And I know most of the guys on their team and they're good guys, but there's like two guys that, that just have bad attitudes. And honestly, there's two guys on my team that, that have bad attitudes. And, um, we each had three guys from our side ejected and pretty soon there's no substitutes and, it's getting ridiculous. People are still arguing. You know, the clock is running down, and the refs are so busy, you know, assessing penalties. And those of us that weren't fighting were just like standing there, you know, watching the game slip away. And um, and I just got so tired of it in that moment, and and I just looked at this guy on the opposing team who was like five feet away from me, and I just looked him in the eyes, and I just skated over, and I went, "Let's hug it out." and we just hugged each other and then i just started going up to the guys on their team and i was like you know i let's uh, where's the love i said i don't want to hate where's the love and we just one by one i hugged each of the five guys on their team and then we all kind of la- started laughing and uh, and we played and uh it was beautiful it was a beautiful moment and uh and i'm proud i'm proud that i was the guy to bring love into the, into the, the momentary cloud of hate, because I have been that guy making the cloud of hate, and it's not satisfying. Maybe for a split second, it's satisfying. But um, yeah, so I want to read you a couple of uh, Struggle in the Sentences. This one is filled out by a guy who calls himself, Sorry, I Picked the Wrong Parents. He is uh, in his 20s, and about his depression, he writes, the unrelenting sadness isn't what scares me. It's the episodes of complete apathy I experience in between. I begin to casually think about ways to kill myself and find the only way to remind myself I'm alive is to cut myself. About his love addiction, he writes, I feel like I need someone to love me and be intimate with me for my life to have any kind of purpose or meaning. Uh, about experiencing racial or cultural bias. He writes, Dear white people, I'm sorry I picked the wrong parents. I'll choose more wisely next time. Uh, about his anger issues. When I get stressed, I get very pissed very quickly. It can be something as small as dropping my phone while I'm using it or getting food on my clothes, and this anger drives me to cut myself. I imagine doing even more violent things to myself but don't have the means to at the moment. And a snapshot from his life, he writes, Right now I'm in a state of absolute apathy, eating, bathing, going to class. None of it means a fucking thing. I don't care about what becomes of me and haven't eaten in about three days. I can't cry. I don't laugh. No smiling or anything. I'm just numb. Buddy, my heart goes out to you. And I want to encourage you to go talk to somebody, especially, it sounds like you're at college um there are often very very low fee or free uh counseling services um but you should see somebody because it sounds like there obviously something is very um serious going on and it might be something chemical that could be helped with with meds or beginning talk therapy but don't don't just sit there and accept that 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 small painful life you you deserve better than that this is and I have been that in that place that you're at, and it, that is not. It, you don't have to be that way. Uh, this is I <laughs> love this guy's name. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself "Fuck Everyone Who Gives a Fuck." Uh, I am going to go actually get that dot com. I'm going to go buy that domain name and dot org, because there just seems to be a little bit of altruism in that in that name. Um. About his depression, the task of brushing my teeth is like asking a healthy person to run continuously for 10 years. About his love addiction, purposefully looking away from an attractive woman because I can already feel the pain entering my soul. That is profound. That is fucking profound. Um, About his OCD, telling my negative side to fuck off while I tap my toe exactly 10 times before getting out of my chair. Uh, about his codependency, wishing my mate were as codependent as me, then it'd be a match made in fucking heaven. Uh, This is filled out by the other Heather, and she writes about her depression, it's the feeling of, I just want to go home, but you have it everywhere, even at home. About her PTSD, she writes, I should be strong enough to handle this shit from my past, but some memories I can't simply unsee, and it makes me feel weak that I'm still affected after all these years. A uh, snapshot from her life, she writes, My adoption was a taboo subject in the house I grew up in. Any questions regarding the topic were completely ignored. It made me feel incredibly lonely. The thoughts I had on the adoption subject were pretty heavy and a lot to deal with on my own. One day, at around age 12, I broke down crying because I felt so burdened with all of my questions. My mother came to my room, stood in the doorway, and asked why I was crying. Through choked tears, I started to explain. But once she understood it had to do with my adoption, she covered her ears with her hands, turned, and walked away. The sense of abandonment I had felt up until that point doubled that day, and it's still with me today. Thank you for sharing that. Um, You know, the longer I do this podcast, the more I realize uh, what we all experience may be different on the surface, but it's so similar in terms of how we feel it, how we experience it. You know, I was having trouble getting out of bed the other day just because of the anxiety and the dread and the fear of responsibility. And the thought occurred to me that every morning my body wakes up in a custody battle between my goals and my fears.
1: Oh, God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that.
0: The burden of perfectionism.
1: And that's when I got into therapy. Let's
0: talk about that. I was like,
1: fuck it, I'm alive, I don't give a shit about
0: anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings.
1: I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good, pretty
0: good. (laughs) Like Before I roll the uh, the interview with Clint, I just wanted to give you uh, set the stage, uh, as it were. Um, before they brought uh, me up to record the podcast, there was a speaker uh, named Kendra Fisher, who is a goalie um, who played at extremely high levels um, at one point uh, playing for Team Canada. And um, she had untreated mental illness, uh, OCD, depression, um, a, a lot of other things. And she's since worked through them and you know manages her, her mental illness. But she shared her story, and so much of it was similar to Clint's. So when he gets on stage, um, he's deeply affected by not only that, but they also rolled the 30 for 30 documentary short um, called Cutthroat, which uh, ESPN did. Uh, about clint and his story and he hadn't seen it in a long time and so the two of those were very emotionally overwhelming to him so i thought that would be important for you to understand uh, as we begin here the interview with clint let's get him to the stage ladies and gentlemen former nhl goalie clint malarchuk So where do we? And uh, his wife Joni is in the audience. So nice to meet you too. And I think the uh, is the your your co-author of your uh, book here.
1: Dan Dan Robson, co-author of my book. Beautifully Uh, done. Uh, Wonderful guy, and you know we we didn't know each other when we started, but we're great friends now.
0: Oh God, how could you not be? Yeah. Um, the book is called in the states it's called a matter of inches and uh here in canada it's called uh, the crazy game uh i just finished it and uh, highly highly recommend it it's such a great peek into n- not only somebody who lives with ptsd and ocd and had a rough uh childhood in many ways but uh it's fascinating getting inside the the head of a uh, professional athlete and, and what that pressure is like. And I love the stories of being a junior, um, traveling on the bus and uh, pranks with your friends and all, all that kind of stuff. Let's talk, let's talk about what it was like uh, for you growing up as a kid. You grew up in Edmonton, spent a lot of time on the, uh, outside of Edmonton in nature.
1: Um, what, I guess let's start with what was, what was the home life like? Well, it wasn't good. I mean, uh, home life was. I, I grew up with an alcoholic father, and um, just excuse me. I haven't seen that uh, video or the the screen of that for some time. I'm a little taken aback by it. Uh, but not not only that, Kendra, your story was so similar. I was uh, fighting tears hearing your. Your story, I mean, wow, it's its so similar to mine, and I thought I was the only one knowing that I'm not now as far as I've come talking and talking and meeting people that suffer. Um, but just hearing that story so similar, we're not just uh, hockey players and goalies on top of that. But, uh, wow, that that got me going right away. So I'm a little taken aback. Let's lighten it up. Tell a joke. <laughs> You're supposed no. to be a comedian, oh, aren't dude, you? Dude, <laughs> I love this. I love this. Clint's crying. Uh, Kendra's wife is holding but, her hand, and it, she's crying. You know what's amazing, though? And really, you, know, you started off with, with sharing uh, at the top of it, and, and that uh, we're able to, to come together and help one another, meet one another, support one another, cry in front of one another, man or woman, and It's okay. You know, that's that's I'm safe in, in these in these environments because I can cry and I don't have to apologize or anything for it. Um, but we can also laugh and and, you know, you, you're you talking about the book and we can get into that or whatever. But uh, it's amazing how my wife and I now I mean, doing the book with Dan and, uh, you know, being interviewed and going deep into that 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 those dark places again was really, really hard. And then we, we, we now that we're out and we're speaking about it more, and uh, my wife and I some of the stories, um, like me escaping from a mental hospital and the CIA and FBI are after me. I got my cell phone, I'm doing the army crawl through bushes and and they're looking for me and and I'm talking to my wife, the CIA, the FBI, and you know at the time it was it wasn't that funny, but now. <laughs> Now we go. Oh my God! Remember that the CIA? Come on, Clint. The FBI? You're not that important. <laughs> <laughs> and, and but we laugh, and and it, that's good, and it's healthy. It it really is. And like when you opened, you know, what are you doing coming to Canada? Well, you know, crazy me talking to crazy people, and you know, we can use that term crazy. At least we can, you know, because I I. I I feel like I at times still am, and I definitely was—at least I felt it—and for for our w- afflictions, you know. It's, I guess it's a term of endearment, isn't it? Is, it is, yeah.
0: and you've used it. You know, uh, yeah. I I would bristle at somebody who doesn't know me, you right. know, saying, "Oh, Paul Gilmartin, that guy's crazy." Yeah. But like, if a friend says, uh, you know, refers to my somebody who I've shared with. You know, refers to it as my my crazy or something yeah. like that. I know it's coming from a place well, as of a love. For, as a
1: goaltender, we everybody oh they're goalie they're crazy, and so it was actually kind of cool because you could act any way you wanted and you'd have the excuse always oh, a goalie. You know, they're crazy. They can. They, it's just your if you're a goalie, you can do that. You can do anything.
0: Is there? A, I don't think it's any coincidence that the two. uh most idiosyncratic uh, athletes that you see in sports are pitchers and goalies, and it makes sense because there are there is no other than maybe a golfer but they're not supporting a team there There are really no other athletes where there is much burden on their shoulders that I can think of well
1: I, you know quarterbacks yeah um you know a pitcher you, you know but it, it, something about the, the the objects coming at you <laughs> increases the, yeah. the, you might want to say uh, goaltending is, is maybe a little more. Uh, have,
0: have you ever taken it personally? Like when somebody, and I know you have because uh, I've, I've read about all the fights. So I would imagine you took a lot of things personally when you were in your sickness. But, you know, if somebody really unloads a slapper at you, um, does it does it ever just, Kiss you off?
1: Well, in practice it did. You know, like when they in, go high on you? Yeah, especially in warm-ups. And I think I wrote about that in the book yeah. when I threw my stick and broke that guy's nose. I think that made the... you know, it's One like, of the many like, noses Clint broke in the well, book. Well, you look at my nose. I, 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 I didn't yeah. give all the punches. I took a few. Um, you have supported so many doctors' kids going to college. It's oh, not even absolutely! Funny. Yes, uh, you're a gift. Not just not just the medical doc, like the yeah. Oh, yes. psychiatrists. Hey, I've built a few mansions <laughs> for them.
0: But but it would uh, it would
1: it would piss you off when uh, if they didn't respect the warm yeah. up and, and that once you were warmed up, you know, you're kind of fair game.
0: But I guess what I was asking was because you didn't really refer to it in the book, but. Um, you know there's a there's a headspace I would imagine I know just playing amateur hockey that you get into it's us against them, et cetera et cetera um but when the stakes are so much higher and you're somebody like you who was raised to be a cowboy,
1: what do you mean somebody like me <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, did you ever w- when you would be tending net um and let's say you're having a bad game, and they and they were lighting you up. Would you feel rage at the at the other team, or would it was no. it turned
1: inward? Oh, will definitely at myself. Okay. I mean, yeah, you, you know, if you're having a bad game, I had one, I think, and <laughs> um, I can't remember that one very well. So, <laughs> next question? <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure, it was always internal. you you, yeah. you know, it's 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 about you. i, so I, I you know. Uh, listening to Kendra again too on on that stuff. There's there's it, it it's yourself and and also the sleepless nights and not wanting to leave the home and 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 and, 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 and there's so it, I, I I was really impressed with your story. And, it's, it's
0: it's shocking how similar
1: your, your oh, story is. Ridiculous. Uh, Kendra, I mean, it's, Kendra and I met yesterday. Um, I think it was at a strip club and she was working <laughs> and. and <laughs> No, we were here at this uh, great festival, by the way, and I was like, "This is this is too weird." And I said, "You must have read my book, and you're screwing with my head because you know I'm crazy, and you're telling me you're crazy, and you did this and this and and it was on and on and on." I'm like, "Come on!" Finally, I said, "Do you like horses?" Okay, that was the only thing that she wasn't really into horses because it was really getting weird (laughs) on our on our. There's things that we have shared in our in our. In our in our positions as goalies in hockey, and and also just on where we've been to the depths we've been, and um, you know a little bit of self medicating in there, and all this stuff. It was just like, and then to hear her speak was even she went into more depth of it, and I, I was I was tearing up because it was like she read my book, but she didn't. She didn't read my book, and so now I'm pissed off and taking that personal. <laughs> and I don't take things personal, right? Isn't well, it? Isn't it the best?
0: Even though you're you're not happy, they had to go through what they went through. But isn't it the best? Just
1: knowing you're not alone. Oh and my feeling god! Feeling it. You, you know. Feeling it in your bones, in your gut. It's when, like when, when when I wrote the book. I I, I mean I relapsed. I I, I relapsed uh, and started to drink again because it was so painful, and I remember the. Um, the final edit I did, and like on the video, that's all filmed in my barn because that's where I live. My wife won't let me in the house too too much, but I love my barn. I like being outside, and if it's the winter, I, I, the barn has a little bit of warmth or whatever. But I I like to be out there. So, anyways, I'm on the phone with Dan, and we're I doing the final edit, telling him the things you know we need to tweak or whatever. And I, I as soon as we were done, we went through it, and I just cried and i just like i not cried i sobbed i just it was coming out of me and it was just so emotional and the bond that with dan and i had formed doing the book because he'd seen me cry before many times but he it was like he hugged me through the phone now it, it, that that's what sharing did at that point i could feel his love for me and but I guess my point, the book was so damn difficult and I, that I did relapse and started to self-medicate again. So that's how hard it was. I'm not proud of the relapse, but it happens. And it, 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 the, the point is, now that the book is done, everybody goes, is it hard? You're out there and you're talking about it. And they, oh, my God. It, the feedback has been so phenomenal because people are going basically just saying thank you. And all that is is I just shared, and it's like you said. Now, now it's 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 out there, and people can relate, and you don't feel alone. You don't feel alone, even, even when I I still think. Oh, I don't know if anybody had it quite as bad as me. And then Kendra shares her. You know, it, it it's the same stuff, and there's a lot of people. I I'm assuming here, you know that know somebody or are struggling. And it, we're all in it together, and, you know, we speak about, I think Michael Landsberg with TSN coined the phrase, it's a, a weak, It's not a weakness, it's a sickness. And that allows you, okay, and, and what's the difference between, there's so much physical parts of, of this uh, element, and, you know for me i have a chemical imbalance it's a i don't produce enough serotonin which causes anxiety depression all the, all the things we talk about and what's the difference if you're diabetic it's a chemical it's, imbalance it's a it's, a per- the perfect it's, it's physical it's yeah. physical problem is because it affects our emotions right. and our thinking and that it becomes mental you know i always
0: say you know when when somebody emails me and they say you know, I went to my mom or my dad or my spouse and said, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing this stuff. I'm, uh, And they say, you, you just look at all you have to gr- be grateful for,
1: you yeah, know, yeah. look at. Yeah, yeah, I've been and there. And say
0: people that think they understand clinical depression because they've experienced situational sadness is like thinking you understand Italy because you've been to the Olive Garden. <laughs> Now, there's a slight resemblance, <laughs> but it ain't the same thing. It ain't the same thing. Uh, let's. I want to talk about your your how you got to where you are today. So let's start with the beginning. Paint that picture of your dad coming well, home y- that yeah, night, trying the, to get into the house.
1: And and it goes back, yeah, You know, and whether this had a big uh, part of my mental illness, I don't know. But I, I had severe anxiety as a kid, but home life was was bad. I, You know, I, uh, my father came home drunk one night in the middle of the night, and I woke up to smashing of windows in, in the house. And, you know, those are traumatic things. And shortly after that, I was hospitalized with severe anxiety. Um, I, I didn't feel normal as a kid by any means. Um, over time, you know things and, and at that time they didn 't know what to do with me they they had no idea, and so I was hospitalized they were sedating me and and there was nothing really done. I did get somewhat better and went through my uh, my teenage years I, I I know I was obsessive because I was obsessive to be a goalie a, a good goalie not, not for me it wasn 't the blue and white it was to to be an n h l goalie and um I, too, can relate to the obsessiveness of doing everything. And I knew I trained harder and did more than anything. But I don't know if that was a channeling of my anxiety from my childhood. I don't know. And it really doesn't matter. It just, you know, I, I was overly obsessive. But it, it, it saved me in some ways because I, I thought about this later, that I, I'd walk home from the outdoor rink, and on the outdoor rink we'd, I'd play for hours and hours and hours, and I didn't want to go home. And you're a kid, you don't think, why don't I want to go home or anything? I, now I look back, I probably didn't want to go home because home was not good. But I'd walk back home through this big field of snow, and it was, it was like the anxiety would start to build again. And I, I, I'm sure that was because I was going home. So my freedom was the rink. My freedom was hockey, and it evolved into you know later in life and making it to the NHL. And, and um, I think my obsessiveness got me to the NHL, no doubt, mm-hmm. because I trained uh, a quick story. My brother was seven years older than me, also a goalie. We had a lot of the same coaches, and he was the skill guy. And every, coaches, when we go back, they say, I can't believe that uh, I made it to the NHL. And he didn't because he had the skill. But I obviously had that work ethic that was beyond even work ethic. It was obsessiveness. So I I give the OCD credit for getting me there. It was later on that it overtook my life.
0: What percentage of um,
1: professional athletes do you think have a touch of OCD or... Not just athletes, I think uh, there's a lot of very, very successful people in business, in, in athlete, athletics, artists um, that are driven. They have OCD. I think we all have a touch of it. Mm-hmm. To How about professional hand washers, do you think? Uh, are, you, are you talking about me again? I, feel, <laughs> I don't take things personal, but man, you're getting under my skin. I was a professional hand washer, I still am. I still am, but you know i can i can I can live with that. I don't get as many colds as you guys
0: <laughs> what does it What does it feel like in your body when your mind is telling yourself, um, you've got to wash your hands again and you
1: resist the urge to it
0: is there Is there an energy that's left in your body as you fight that
1: urge it's It's anxiety and and that's just one you know, element of it, what you're talking about, germs d- 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 and all uh, d- d- oh, the describe anxiety. Describe it, if you if you oh, would, the, in the, your the, body. The, my gut would just be nodding up, and, and then I can feel my, like, it, just just describing it, I'm starting to feel it. My shoulders start to get tight. I, I hunch in a little bit. My breathing will get shorter, and my mind starts to, I, I'm not thinking about you talking to me. I'm thinking about when can I get up and go wash my hands. And see, I just took a breath because it's it's like that right now, describing it. I'm getting that that gut feeling. My heart rate will speed up. Um, yeah, it, it, and and that's just one uh, aspect of OCD we're talking about. We could go into ritualistic thinking or, you know, a lot of different things where the same bodily things happen to me.
0: What are some and, of the ritualistic things? I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, not no, this. You. What are some of the ritualistic thinkings uh, that... that you just mentioned um some some things that you were well, it, 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 it's them.
1: not so much what it was, it's that I couldn't turn it off. And people that don't have O C D they go, you know, just quit thinking about it or quit doing it or you know, whatever. And my wife always says it's like somebody we've all had a song stuck in our head and it might be a not a good song you don't it's like it it's always a terrible song yeah. it's never yeah. a good song and it's song. stuck in your head and you get you get out of there get out of there well it's it's kind of like that except magnify it and really know that you cannot stop that thought you can't stop it. It, it no matter what you do and that is the chemical imbalance it's got nothing to do with willpower It's got nothing to do with, uh, uh, you know, just change your, get busy with your hands or anything like that. You can be busy with your hands, but it's not going to turn it off. And it's it's that chemical imbalance that doesn't allow your rationale to go, okay, I'm going to think about something different. You don't have that ability, and it's a chemical imbalance. It's like telling your pancreas, okay, start producing more insulin so I'm not diabetic.
0: It's like a terrible song stuck in your head that's written about you yeah. by a bitter ex. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> it, it'd be like going to see a bad stand-up comedian. And, Easy now. and Easy now. And, and trying to laugh so his feelings aren't hurt.
0: <laughs> I wish I could say that that never happened. But <laughs> you name a shit gig, I've done it. <laughs> I performed for two people one time who did not care for me. Wow. Yeah, that was tough. How'd that work for you? Yeah. (laughs) Not good. Not good. Uh, So talk about, and this is is the hockey geek in me coming. There's no way I'm going to interview Clint Malarchuk and just stick to the stuff about.
1: Yeah, I found out you were kind of a groupie before the uh, show started. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I
1: was going to wear your jersey, but there you were too see, many teams. You see what his underwear looks like. Never mind his... I mean, this guy's on it. You just missed my shot at you. I, took a,
0: I just joked at how many times you've been traded. I said, I was going to wear your jersey, but there I, I, there was nine different teams to pick from. Yeah. Come on, he took a shot at me. I can't take a swing back. Yeah. Um, talk about the when you went from living at home to... Um, playing f- for Portland yeah. winter winter well, the, hawks.
1: The, the thing with, with, with that, you know, okay that you, you kinda get an idea of the abuse of father and, and things. I didn't go into a bunch of detail, but things weren't good. When dad left and we had nothing, zero. He wasn't we didn't even know where we went to. So we were selling furniture to live. We were doing all sorts. So mom and I probably uh developed what what what's one counselor of the How many counselors are there? (laughs) Six, seven, eight. (laughs) He's counting on his toes now. Yeah. Um, Described as an abnormal relationship, but said, hey, you had no choice. I depended on her for support she had to go back in the workforce i supported her like you know when i was young and and so we we developed such a bond that we 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 like we almost became partners in an abnormal way uh with the support of each other and everything and I think that uh, leaving home, I was so homesick. I mean, I almost quit hockey. I wanted to quit hockey. It, it was that bad, but hockey was my life. It was my love. It was my savior of, of my ent- mental problems that I was having without even being diagnosed back then. So it was very tough for me to leave home and, and because of that bond I had with, with my mother. And, uh, you know, I'm not ashamed of, of, of it. We, had, we, we developed that bond because we had to for survival. Um, and support of each other, so that was the biggest thing for me. Leaving home was just unbelievable homesickness.
0: Uh, when you, uh, there's one other thing that I want to talk about, and I'm not trying to throw your mom under the bus, but I, I found fi- I, there was a kind of a link in my brain between that moment. Imagine that. that, that <laughs> That moment when you were a kid and you got hurt on the ice, and what your mom when you wanted well, her to comfort you. But you remember what
1: she said. Well, a, a lot of people, um, you know, ask me what, what did you think, what was going through your mind, because you know you're, you you see this blood pouring. No, 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 no,
0: no. I'm talking about when you were a kid and you shared this in the book where you got hurt one time.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, she she was a she was a tough old broad in, in a good in in really good ways. I mean, she knew the hockey. She knew the game and and uh, she brought me up to be tough, uh, you know, as far as hockey went. And one time, you know, I, I, I went into the, I was playing forward then. I was just a tyke, and I went in the boards and the butt end of my stick Oops! And speared yourself. In the yes, bed. and you know she. I remember she was up on the snowbank looking, and she says, "You know, skate off! Don't, don't go down." I'm like, "It's a nut!" Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, "It's a long ways from your heart. Get, don't lay on the ice. You know, be a man about it. Almost." And so she taught me that that toughness.
0: Yeah, because as I was reading your book, it's there it, it was just time after time after time. Where that's that was your coping mechanism was to you know quote unquote cowboy up, oh for sure, and deny what you were feeling inside, which you know is at the beginning of the interview as you were tearing up. It's it's beautiful to me when anybody does that, but when you do that, it's especially beautiful because you were that cowboy stereotype for so long.
1: Um, Can you can you talk about that? Well, it's it's taken me. That, you know, I was always um, trying to be the tough guy all the time. You know, that, hence the fights, hence the rodeo, hence the hockey play, hence everything that I did was always trying to be masculine and, and you know, tough. And I think that hurt me from a young age, trying to always be. And, and, and it's part of society with men, that, you know men don't cry, men don't show emotion men I did an interview the other day and there was a lady and a man interviewing me and off the, uh, on a commercial break um, he says, well she's real open and honest about her mental illness and depression and everything she go, he goes, I got panic attacks. I've touched it a bit on the air but I really struggle with anxiety and, and panic and I said, well, that's the man thing. And and before you know it, we come back from a commercial break and he's now going, yeah, that panic stuff, you know, I got some of that and, well, I got quite a bit of it, you know, and he started to open up because I shared, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, okay, that's why I feel like, uh, for me, playing in the NHL and, uh, you know, even the rodeo and, you know, the ranch life and everything, they're all kind of manly stuff, you know, in Canada, hockey, in the NHL, you've got the Superman cape. You're bulletproof. So that has given me an avenue to be vulnerable now. Because, you know, I've d- I've done all that stuff. That- and people- you've proven that you've yeah, got that side I've figured got, out. I've got some testosterone. That's actually how it's pronounced. Yes. A lot of people yeah. mispronounce it yeah, testosterone. I, I nailed it. Yeah. And... And, you know, now I can I, – hey, my book is out there. It's open, and it's described as raw and, like, almost too honest. You know, you can never be too honest. But And so what am I going to do? You're all going to know my deep, dark secrets. I think So, so many, what?
0: I think so many guys are afraid to admit that we have a feminine side to us. Everybody, you know, women have a masculine side to them, and men have a feminine side to them. And, uh, you know, I kept mine buried for 48 years, and yeah. now that I've gotten in touch with it doing this podcast, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. It's so
1: nice to, yeah, th- to let I, down. Uh, I, I, like, I'm tearing up with Kendra talking, and I thought, well, i got to get my shit together before I go up there because they're going to see me cry. So what? You know?
0: There's one guy No, there's a guy in the back that was mocking him. Yeah. You should have seen it. Uh, hey, and hey, he was buddy. somebody
1: we all respect. Come here and bend my nose for me. I'll yeah. straighten okay. yours. Uh,
0: but it's it's so beautiful seeing um, seeing somebody get in, t- in touch with that side of themselves cuz it's funny people can See that us suppressing that side, most people can see us somebody who is well balanced can see somebody suppressing that that side and themselves coming you know trying to to come out and it 's heartbreaking to watch somebody deny um, part of their authentic uh, selves and in your book it 's just such a beautiful arc um, let's I know we saw on the on the clip. Um, I'm I'm recording this, and the the listeners to the podcast are going to hear this. They they won't get to see the clip. Um, if it's not too painful for you to talk about the the accident when you were playing goal, mm-hmm. could you talk about that? But if not, no, I, no, I completely no, no, understand. No,
1: I think it's important because that was the the push that that really not realizing it at the time. Um, in fact, it was years later that um, that I realized that that accident really spiraled me into the depths of real clinical depression anxiety o c d yes, I had o c d but not it was manageable, like I said, it got me to the n h l and probably kept me there for a number of years. The accident itself um, when i when I see it uh, first of all, after it happened, I had terrible nightmares, and I always thought those movies are so fake where the guy you don't even know it's a dream they're showing in the movie and all of a sudden they, they cut to the guy and he wake, wakes up in bed and he's sitting straight up and he's sweating and going <sighs> like, yeah right Hollywood bullshit that was me that was me I'd, wake, I'd see that skate come up and I'd just wake up but when the accident happened and I saw the blood I thought oh, this is it I, that's an artery or it's a vein I'm, I've got minutes here and I immediately thought of my mother and, and for the listeners,
0: um, a guy was coming into the into the crease, an opposing player. Your defenseman right. kind of knocked the guy off balance. His skate came up. Yeah. came up. It hit you in the neck, and the footage of it shows the, yeah. the, the, the blood coming out
1: with each heartbeat pumping out. Right. in a, in a stream. Yeah, I, every and, time my my heart would beat, I, I you know, I'm assuming that's why it was squirting. You know, and it would squirt. The first couple of pumps went about six feet. And I went, oh my God, this is not good. And uh, I thought of my mom. I thought I got to get off the ice because mom's watching this on TV, and she shouldn't see her son die on on you know Technicolor. And um, so that was because uh, I was given credit for you know manning up and skating off under my own power rather than laying there. Uh, well, the other thing, Terry Gregson was a referee, and he's looking down at me, and his eyes are like, he goes, get a stretcher, he's going to die. And I'm going, oh, oh thanks. <laughs> and so, so I thought, well, okay, I I'm I'm, I got seconds, may, may, minutes or whatever, and I'm going to wait for a stretcher. No, I'm, so that was part of it, too, getting off quick. But definitely my mother was, uh, first and foremost, i got to get off. I don't want her to see this. And... Um, you know, that's trauma, and and do you not, th- do you think part of the trauma,
0: in addition to what happened, was the look on people's faces? Oh God, that, you?
1: everybody's patting. Even the doctors were looking at me, going, "Oh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, like I'm used to broken arms. What are you doing, bleeding like this, buddy? I'm not trained." Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the, the the two guys that were there that that helped you on your way to the. Well, I- interesting, uh, you know, our, our medical trainer was a Vietnam vet, so he had seen some blood and guts. And I think they're all trained, at, you know, for these injuries. But seeing it firsthand is a different thing. And this guy, thank God, had some, because he was very calm, uh, Jim Pizzatelli. And uh, he handled it really well. The doctor that saw me immediately handled it uh, Pretty good too, and um, there was a, f- a lot of medical personnel rushed down from the stands that were watching. And you know, they were, I don't know if they just wanted to get close or really wanted to help, but I, everybody I looked at had eyes big, big eyes. Marty Feldman and uh, and uh, you know, Rip, this, I, I'd only been traded there three weeks before, and I was kind of buddied up, I knew the trainers kind of better than anybody. And Rip Simonic, the big stout guy with the banana fingers. Um, he he, kind of held my hand. He's the one I said, call my mom, tell her I love her. And uh, um, you know, there the, the, I'd seen a priest. I'm not Catholic, but you know, I, I I'm a, I'm a spiritual guy. And I I said, you know, is he around? Get him because I saw him around the team quite a bit. And again, I'm a new guy. And I thought, wow, if I got three minutes, I got a lot of repenting to do in three minutes. So <laughs> get him here quick. And. uh What's interesting about that, though, is you know I came back so quick. Again, the macho man up,
0: despite everybody Uh, telling you take the season. Right, right, no,
1: no, no. I'm a cowboy man. I'm you watch. I'll be back. I'm playing this season, and you know, so I came back really quick. Let's fast forward to 2008 when I shot myself, and now I'm uh, you know I'm in this treatment center and this. Lady counselor, who's I called her some names too, um, that would make Joni proud because she'd like to know that that's not the only person I ever cussed when I was at my worst. Um, but Tina? Tina. Yeah. And she was like trying to convince me I had PTSD, and I'm going, ah, why? Because of that accident and blah, blah, blah. And I go, like, are you kidding me? I'm. I came back so quick. I, was, I played 10 days later, blah, blah, blah. It was almost insulting, you know? <laughs> you know. And it, it, she gave me this book to read, um, and, and it was about uh, trauma and animals. Of course, I'm an animal lover, so there was this one story that really hit me, and I went, wow. Um, it, it was about an antelope, and, and there's fight, flight, and freeze. Well, the antelope gets caught, and it froze. The tiger takes it to the bushes, goes, gets the cubs. Cubs come back to eat. And the the antelope, it went into freeze. So it wasn't dead. And what it did, it it got up and it shook all its limbs and bounced off. About four days later, Joni's coming to visit me, gets in an uh, icy fender bender in the mountains, and she says, oh, I held it together. Cops came. We wrote out everything. I got in the car, and I just started to shake. And then I cried. And I went, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what the antelope does. We're animals. This is all good. This is good. (laughs) Tina. I got PTSD <laughs> and and so then we went into extensive therapy on PTSD, and she did some weird voodoo shit to me that was really weird, and then it, it, she even shared with me she goes because i, I after we did this stuff, she was like she 'd see me, and every time I saw her I did, just sob for three days. I cried after she did this uh, this stuff and uh but it's amazing all that time as animals uh antelopes know what to do Mm -hmm. you know nature takes care of that but as men and people but especially men in society you don't cry you don't you you get trauma you buck you 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 know man up let's go Ignore it. Whatever you got to do. And we're so, you know? and we're so oriented yeah. to fix things yeah. instead of to just be and feel. So for how many years? Do the math. 89 to 2008. Somebody? 19 years. 19 years. Thank you. 19 years I had all this trauma in me that I never got rid of because I was a man and I got back quick and I'm, I'd play hockey and, and I never had counseling. I never, never thought of counseling, nor did the team in 89. And when Jednick cut his neck, he had counseling, the family had counseling, the players had counseling. That's how far we've come, thank God. That's good. But... I had all this trauma, and that's why I cried for three days. Mm-hmm. It just came out of me. At Richard, for our listeners,
0: Richard Zednick uh, was a player who had a similar injury um, years after Clint's,
1: yeah, and it, it and it triggered. Uh, that kind of brought yeah, you down to yeah a to spiral, your knees. Yeah, yeah, and and his ironically, you know, my accident happened in Buffalo, and his accident happened in Buffalo. So, don't go to Buffalo. <laughs> it's a cutthroat town
0: uh talk about the the darkest of the dark days, and Jesus Christ, I shot myself <laughs> how dark <laughs> you want another dark <laughs> no i want I want to talk uh about because <laughs> our listeners he's a sick man, <laughs> but he admits it <laughs> our listeners don't know. Um, and I don't need graphic details about what happened, but you just referred to, yeah, the day I shot myself. And I think our (laughs)
1: listeners are going to go, what? What? Uh, Maybe your listeners should have bought a ticket and come here. Huh? (laughs) We have some listeners here. Three listeners? Oh, isn't that like, what, two again, huh? Yeah, two. (laughs) Uh,
0: Just... Tell, tell the, the, the listeners what it, what it
1: was that, that happened. This was in 2008. I think a lot of people can relate. But, you know, now that I'm in, in, a, in a 12-step program and, you know, a lot I've realized there's a lot of people that have suicidal thoughts. And I think a lot, a lot of people have suicidal thoughts. And I acted out on it. Um, obviously, alcohol helped me to do that. But there was a time, and at that time i didn 't want to die, but i didn 't want to live. I wish God would just take me, or I'd get hit by a train or a car, or you know because i didn 't want to do that drastic act of of suicide
0: was one of the nice things about turbulence on a plane, and i 'm not kidding is when you're in that place that I would get giddy when yes. the plane would get turbulent and everybody yeah. would be scared and I'd be thinking, there's a hey, sta- it goes yeah, down they're so they're all I don't have I, to do anything. I relate.
1: Yes. I concur. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know... It, it, Finally, yeah. somebody's do- helping me. Yeah, yeah somebody's listening. Yeah. What took you so long? I was yeah. ready two days ago. So, so but, you're but, in that but, place. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I realize that there's a lot of people that, that share that and, and it... it, it for me, it was—I I didn't want to. I, so I used to pray, "God, take me, or take this away from me. Either way, I can't go on like this." And so I really didn't want to commit suicide. And when I actually picked the gun up, I didn't leave a note or anything. My head was spinning, and and that day I started drinking even earlier. So, just you set your alarm to get up and drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 See, i bet there. Are people that do we're, that? We're in recovery. Yeah. We, we can relate. <laughs> yeah, and, and so it was like I, I'd come to a, to a peak. There was one time in Buffalo after the accident where I didn't sleep for ten days, oh and that's not a, yeah, and that's not an exaggeration. That I, that, you know, and it, 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 this was similar. I don't think I would have slept, but I'd pass out because I was drinking. And so I was using alcohol very much as as a, my self medication, and it, of course now it's it's a big problem too. So you know my head was spinning so much, and I wanted God to take me, but I didn't want to do a suicide because it's you can't, you know it's. And when I picked the gun up, I didn't. I was shooting you know tin cans and rabbits and anything that moved. Thank God the neighbors weren't out, <laughs> but. You know, I and I was just thinking, you know, a bullet could do it, a bullet could do it and and but also that mind was going on other things that I couldn't stop. So when Joni finally came home, I didn't know if the gun had a bullet in it or not. And when I picked it up and I just boom, under my chin. And I mean I heard it. I heard the bang. And I didn't feel any pain. And then I saw the blood, so I knew I hit the target and I I was kind of in shock I was like it was loaded oh my god and I immediately told her um, she called 911 I said you do not tell them that I shot myself tell them I was crawling through a fence that uh, the gun went off Um, you know I I mean this is crazy." and then the helicopter comes they're going to life flight me and I'm going I'm not getting on that thing it's going to go down that doesn't look safe (laughs) and no I'm not this is all this is all true and the police are there they're well, first of all, the whole police department we've well, we got three there no they, they, they all show up and they don 't you've got to remember now Joni's phoned in a gun accident, and so they come guns drawn well yeah they don 't know if she shot me or neighbor shot, they don 't know anything so their, their guns are drawn and, and i 'm walking around i 'm bleeding um, the, you know, and the cops are telling me get down on the ground or sit down, or they didn't know. What they, they're not used to seeing a guy with a bullet in his head walking around. Fuck you! I ain't going with you. I didn't do anything wrong. The gun went off. I was crawling through a fence, right, Joni? And Joni's like totally And How shot are now. you
0: speaking
1: at I know, that point? That's what's incredible. You
0: missed part of your tongue. No, it if went you, through my tongue, through your tongue, yeah. through the roof of your mouth. Yeah, not not two teeth out. Two teeth out, which is
1: considered a kick save. Yeah, the way. Thank you. <laughs> And and Joni found a tooth uh, later, totally intact. Yeah, like yeah, but yeah, and it went through my uh, roof of my mouth, uh, through my sinuses, and stuck right there. Can you see it? It did, and, and has not caused any other than the, the hole in
0: your mouth, which needed time to repair. Right. Um, no lasting damage.
1: I know. So it's incredible amazing. that I didn't lose an eye. Well, that I didn't die, lose an eye, speech impediment, um, you know, anything. It, just, it's amazing. And that had a big part of me waking up um, in intensive care. Um, I think I'd just gotten out of intensive care. My mother had flown down, um, and that, hence the book. I, I thought, you know what? I'm 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 spared for a reason. Why did Why am I alive? You know, there's another episode. I've almost died three times. Why did God spare me?
0: Was this before you went through the PTSD stuff with uh, Tina?
1: Oh yeah. Okay. This was the beginning. Okay. So you hadn't cried
0: yet, obviously. When this, you hadn't released all that stuff when this happened. I I
1: never cry. I'm a man. I don't (laughs) cry. Right. No, no. Then then I went, uh, uh, after I got out of the hospital, I immediately went to a treatment center and I was in there six months. And the first two months, you want to talk about a mean son of a bitch? Oh, was I mean, Joni? Oh, it was It was awful. And relentless. It, and all oh, relentless. You were relentless. But everybody in the place was afraid of me. Um, it was, I mean, I was a mean, angry, because why should I be there?
0: You had it going on.
1: Yeah. Life was great. Yeah. I mean, that's how sick I was. I thought I should not be there. You know, yeah, I shot myself. If you guys wouldn't have intervened, I would have stitched myself up, which I've done before. And what's the big deal? Seriously, that's where my, my, my head was at. I mean, get me out of here. It, 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 as sick as, that's how sick I was. I was not rational in any way. Anyway. So let's let's fast and thank you for sharing.
0: You know, retouching on those uh, those things as uh, as uncomfortable as it uh, must be to well, call the helps accident help people. The, okay, and, you know, um, let's fast forward to you get out. You've you've begun to process the PTSD. Let's talk about the relationship with Joni, who in the meantime. Had been when you were a treatment center. She was going in for family counseling and finding out about the dynamic of what it means to enable somebody who's in their sickness and won't get help.
1: Let's pick up there. She she tells it really good because you know I was fortunate in so many ways because the NHL and the NHLPA were were funding my treatment. I couldn't afford it to go six months to a treatment center. Then they decided, and Joni and I were still like you know I just shot myself. I blamed her. Um, you know things were not good, but we didn 't see each other much at all because I was in treatment, and she was in at home and um, i was I was phoning, and we 're not supposed to have two phones. I had a hockey phone and a personal phone, so of course, I kept one, so I was able to phone her until she turned me in and said he 's got a phone no he got his phone no he 's got two phones okay, so now i 'm really mad at her. And it, it, it was a lot of anger. And, and then I'd borrow somebody's cell phone or steal one to, you know, not steal it, but see one and grab it, use it, and put it back. And she turned me in for that. So finally I took her off the list where she could not contact me. Uh, they could not tell, yeah, I'm going to get back. I'm going to get even with that bitch, you know. For standing there and looking at me while I shot myself. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 but this is where I'm, you know, as, as sick as, well, as sick as it sounds, that's how sick I was. How's that for you? You know, it, it sounds what an asshole, but you know what? I, I These are the things I did. And that's the problem. But I, I didn't, I, a lot of the stuff I don't remember, it's been told to me. But Joni, when they sent her to a family counseling with a Betty Ford, and it's a five day thing, and it's funny when she tells the story because she didn't know what to make of me because I was so ventful to her and, and hurtful in my verbiage. And, big word, verbiage. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she, she, she said she was sitting there, and she, they, everybody was sharing about, because they all had somebody that was uh, mentally ill and self-medicating in, in a treatment. So these people are sharing about so-and-so. Uh, and she goes, well, he says that. Clint says that. Clint did that. Clint said that. Clint that. He's not even original. <laughs> and, and then she felt like, okay, it's not really Clint. It's it's The sickness all these people saying the same thing. So again, it's like being here and sharing. You know, it, you're not alone. So she didn't feel alone. So then we started to open up the communication, and she could understand more that I, 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 it was a sickness. It wasn't really me. And she knew that anyways because she'd seen the good Clint. She just didn't like my evil twin. And he lived there. I mean, he was there, and he came out every day. But she'd also seen me when I was reasonably healthy. And I think that's helped motivate her through a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the staying with me and giving her the hope that I could be well and be back to my old self. I heard during the video there's some people when when Joni was speaking and when I shot myself, I didn't lose consciousness, so I'm, that's how thick my skull is, um, so I'm standing there bleeding and I said, see what you made me do. And I heard some people go, oh, that, that's trauma for her. But that's how sick I was. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I, I had no idea where my head was at. I mean, it was going 100 miles an hour and, you know, was, you know, so I blame her. Terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And, and, and in the book, I'm very honest about what, what an asshole I was. I was, but it wasn't really me, and, and that's why they ask her, how did you do it? How, why did you stay with him? He's such a... But I'm not. That was a sick... You were thing. sick,
0: yeah. I was sick. You weren't an asshole. You were
1: sick. I was acting like an asshole. You were playing an asshole on TV, but, and you did yeah. such a good job. Yeah. <laughs> no acting there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and now when we sign books, it's incredible, because the people who have read the book want her to sign it. And to me, that, she's become a hero and rightfully so, because she was a hero. And I dedicate the book to my mother and to Joni, my saint, because she was. I mean, the the shit she put up with, it was beyond, like... Give them a snapshot of a
0: typical day when you were at your sickest. Because there was a, a repetitive like day or week that you would live out again and again and again there was like six in a row a period of i don't know a couple of years um paint the picture for our for our listeners probably
1: at the worst of it uh when you know getting to the climax of my gunshot uh, i would say that i would wake up in the morning i'd feel okay but within the, the the anxiety would start with it you know within 20 minutes but it was manageable and i'm used to living with anxiety because as a, as a kid i thought that was I, I lived with anxiety and if i wasn't feeling anxious something was wrong so i would you know so i'm getting to that anxious point within 2 hours it would it would build to where i'm i'm just clenching my fists and the head would start to spin and thoughts would come in and i couldn't turn my brain off so I would start to drink. It would calm me down a bit and I could go about my day a little bit and, and, and breathe a little bit because I couldn't really breathe and I'd be all tight. So I could breathe a little and then I'd obviously drink more because my head's fighting. Now I got both things going, you know, the head's trying to combat that booze I think. So I'd drink more and more. By, you know, eight o'clock at night I'm pretty much thirty beers in and it's a no. nice round number, though. Well, I wore 30. <laughs> was that your yeah, number? Yeah, that was my number. So I drank 30. You really do have OCD. Yeah. <laughs> but I quit at 30. <laughs> you know, I, I never went to 31 or 32. And and by then I would be, now I'm a drunk idiot, you know, whereas before I was just an idiot. But I, I would become very... Um, Violent and verbal and mean and,
0: and well, needy, and, 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 needy. And, and needy.
1: Too. Well, this is the thing. I go to Joni, and now i now I've. The, the, okay, this is where mental illness is. I didn't want her to know what was going on up here, so. Now I've got a belly full of beer, and I, that's given me the courage to go to her and talk about it. This, I need this. I need this, and you know I'm not making sense because I got thirty beer in me. But my, and now my mind is going so fast that she can't even make out what I and I don't know what I'm trying to get out there. And I'm just emotional, confused, and I, I, I'm just like, ah! I can hold my head and scream, and I did sometimes. Because I couldn't communicate, I couldn't turn it off, and I couldn't, I wanted her to help me, and she couldn't. So then I'd, you stupid bitch, what the, fuck, you know, Jesus Christ, can't you see my pain? I'm in pain here. I'd grab my head, I'd roll on the floor, I'd, you know, violently act out, throw chairs. Yeah. And, and you, but what, then tomorrow, I wouldn't, I'm have, sorry. I, I wouldn't yeah. have as much anxiety. Till twenty minutes into tomorrow, <laughs> and then the whole thing would repeat itself. And,
0: and you would also ask her over and over again, "Do you love me? Why do you love me?" And yeah. you wouldn't. And she would say, "Yes, I love you. Here's the reason why I love you." But you wouldn't believe her. And right. it Would go on for because hours. And I hours. wanted that
1: thought to complete, and I thought that she could help me complete the thought. yes, yeah, like, she, she loves me, or you know, I, I'm a good guy, or. I'm a great horse dentist, I'm a great hockey coach, or whatever was bugging me. And it usually comes from our insecurities, I think, um, something that you care about. And because if it's something you don't care about, you're probably not going to have that head spin on it. I, I think, too, that there's a war in our
0: brain that we're a piece of shit and we're a fraud, mm-hmm. and we we believe that on a certain level, but we don't want that to be the truth. Yeah. And so we want that person
1: to end that war for us. But yeah, no, yeah. no other person ever and, and as Kendra said, pathetic. Yeah. You know, felt pathetic. And it, 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 it's, it's not a, anybody's thinking that, but we are. And it's things sometimes that we're insecure about or that we really care. For me, it was things I really cared about. The, the one thing I really cared about was I hope Joni loves me you know? And so that's why my head would spin a lot about love and her love for me. And, you know, other things like coaching, you know, a good good coach or, you know, it could be a, a, but mine, mine usually at that time I think I was just so insecure that I wasn't, I didn't love myself probably. I wasn't lovable. I was pathetic. She must think so. Let's ask. Let's ask her. Maybe she can convince me. And even when she'd say, yeah, I love you. Mm-hmm. What? I didn't hear you. I heard her, but the head couldn't complete the thought. Would you ask her 30 times? Uh, that time, the, I think I, I broke my uh, ritual and probably asked her 100. You, you did yeah. multiple. Yeah. Multiples of multiple 30. Multiple 30s.
0: 120. Yes. You'd get, you'd get winded at 100 yeah. and you'd be like, 20 more. I can do it. I can do it. Uh well, um, we're we're out of time, so uh, oh, I I'm, I'm gonna uh, that did you go didn't even quick. tell a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> I never tell good jokes.
1: Well, there's um, two people that think you do. Uh, they've spread the word.
0: Yeah. There's probably now four. <laughs> uh, it, your story is such a beautiful story, and you're such a good ambassador for um, for talking about this, and uh, uh, as well as Kendra. Yeah. Uh, Clint, I want to I want to thank you so much thank for. Just being you, man, and you being too. and being you honest, you, and you're um, the same, yeah, and, and thank you guys for for coming out and uh, and supporting not only the festival but the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Good job. I so so enjoyed that uh, that conversation with Clint and meeting Kendra and uh, her wife Christy, um, and I'm hoping to um, record. Kendra uh next time I'm in Toronto or if she ever gets out here to uh, to LA anyway before I've uh, I've got a stack of surveys I know sometimes with the live episodes I don't do stuff after them but um uh there's a lot of surveys that I that I wanted to read and um uh yeah <laughs> for just went to screensaver uh which my dad used to say is one of my favorite things my dad used to say um before I read the surveys, I uh, just want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can support us financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com and making either one-time PayPal donation or a recurring monthly donation, which uh, helps the most because it gives us a secure financial footing to continue doing the show. Um, and um, you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month, and uh, it means the world to me. Uh, and once you sign up, you don't have to do anything, it just takes care of itself, it, you know, rebills every, every month until you decide to cancel, um, which is naturally going to happen because you will at some point get your fill of me and probably even want your money back. And you won't be able to because I've lawyered up, so fuck you. That took a weird turn. Um, you can also support us, uh, financially by shopping at Amazon through our search portal, not to be confused with the search box for our website itself. And, uh, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels if you buy something. Doesn't cost you anything. And you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating. And, um, you can also help us by spreading the word through social media. That, that really helps, um, bring more listeners to the show because, um, you know, people get tired of podcasts and they leave them, and we always got to kind of find new listeners to keep uh, to keep it growing. Because uh, I want I want to keep this uh, as my thing to to do, my job, and um, there's no other thing I'd rather do in the world. I love it. I love it. I think that's it that I wanted to share with you before we get into the surveys. Yeah that's it um let's let's get right into it no fucking around huh this is from the shame and secret survey and this one is filled out by a guy who calls himself Fooey, and he is in his 40s he's bisexual was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment uh ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts When I was seven or eight, I was playing truth or dare with my babysitter. She had me insert my finger into her vagina. I remember like it was, I remember it like it was yesterday. I felt guilt and I told my mom and the babysitter got in trouble. Secondly, my father had dirty mags hidden in toolboxes and I found them all the time. I seemed to find porn in other places too. My neighborhood was weird. Not the innocent girly mags, but swinger mags and other hardcore stuff. Ever been physically or emotionally abused and by the way, that is sexual abuse um somebody in your care um doing doing that um that that is and it, I don't know if it that probably doesn't help you feel any better, but it's super common for little boys and little girls to be um sexually abused by babysitters um uh ever been physically or emotionally abused uh, not sure. Uh, Darkest thoughts, Uh, I'm addicted to porn. As I grew older, I was rendered incapable of seeing women as anything but sex objects. Darkest secrets, my days are consumed looking at hookup sites and weird shit like that. Being an ADHDer, I crave stimulation both visual and otherwise. I have cheated on my wife with happy ending massage and even hookups with other men. The sneakiness of it is titillating. The buildup is intoxicating. It's getting to the point where I'm not even satisfied when I orgasm. My wife understands my insatiability, but she is clueless about the occasional hookup. I'm embarrassed that I have detached myself from feeling guilty and long for a mindset that is not consumed with sex. I feel like there is no way back to normal. There is a way back. To um first of all, I don't believe in normal, but there is a way back to not being consumed by sex all the time. And it sounds to me like there's a sex addiction at, at work there, which is super common with people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse, which you have. Um again, I'm not a I'm not a therapist, I'm not a mental health professional. These are just my opinions, but um there you have. Uh sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Getting tricked into gay sex when sleeping. And making a heavy plain Jane type come really hard I would bet a thousand dollars that the the babysitter that um, abused you fits that that type that's just my you know me I'm the orgasm detective Um, I just put my little Sherlock Holmes hat on and my (laughs) my magnifying glass which is insulting to men's penises when I when I go in as the orgasm detective Um, they're a little off-put by that and the pipe they find that they find the pipe smoke to be um <laughs> I'm bailing on this bit. Um what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm I'm really caring. I just have this compulsive dark side. Boy, did you nail it. You just nailed it. Um you have you have an injury to your soul that needs healing. You are not a bad person. What if anything do you wish for a reboot on my early sexual imprinting? um have you shared these things with others uh yes but not the hookups uh and it was met with a shrug well i encourage you to to find a support group or a therapist um because there are people who will meet it with more than a shrug they'll meet it with a hug there was no way i was going to rhyme and not make fun of myself um Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, just how they got help without being totally ashamed? Well, I'll tell you, I went to uh, therapy and I went to support groups. And that's where I have started to heal. And I feel way, way better. I'm still crazy. I still get depressed, but it's manageable. Um, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a a woman who calls herself going gray too soon she is uh bisexual she is in her 30s and um i wanted to read just a portion of this um which part did i want to read oh um i found this really interesting because i've heard other people who uh, identify as bisexual sharing the same thing And she writes uh, to the question, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? She writes, I would like to stand in front of my father at one of his conservative anti-gay marriage rallies and maybe even some of the gays and lesbians I have known and give them the same speech. I am bisexual. My husband is bisexual. Just because we are man and woman does not mean that we fit into the heterosexual marriage mold. And just because we did this doesn't mean we chose a direction either. So gay men and lesbians can stop calling us breeders any time now. I fell in love with a person, not a man. His gender was irrelevant. I can't believe that both sides are discriminating against a group that neither of you completely understand. Stop. Let us love as we want to love. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm not uh, insinuating that the entirety of the gay and lesbian uh, community um, views that that way, but she's not the first person I've heard say that the, the, the bisexuals can... Uh, um, or I should say, people who identify as as bisexual can often feel ostracized, like they don't. Oh Jesus, Paul, shut the fuck up! <laughs> if I had had my head on a pillow while I was saying that last couple of lines, I would be sound asleep right now. And those of you that are listening as you go to bed, pleasant dreams, because you're already asleep. Uh this is a happy or an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Whaler. And uh, he writes, one day I was struggling with everything and wanted to die. The stress was too much, feeling like I'm letting everyone down. But I promised my wife I wouldn't do anything stupid. So I went to the hospital. There I sat on this bed in a hallway in New England with a nurse watching me and a cop there as a guard. He looks at me in my Washington Capitals hat and says, really? A Caps fan? Like I needed that right now. He asks if I was from Washington, which I'm not. I'm a born New Englander. Then he asked why I'm a Caps fan, and my reply was, well, I grew up a Whalers fan. The Whalers moved to Washington and became the Capitals. And before uh, I could finish the sentence, he smiled and said, now I like you. That was the first time I smiled in a few days. So there I sat, red eyes from crying, tears dried on my face, talking about the Hartford Whalers in an ER with a police officer who didn't ask about my problem, nor did he care. He was just happy to find a fellow Whaler fan as I was. I've since gotten help and I'm on the road to recovery. Go, Caps. I can love that. I think I read this one. Did I read that one on a previous episode? That sounds familiar. Papers on my desk sometimes get very, um, very piled up and mixed up. This, I wish you could see. I should take a, a, a picture of my unopened mail on the dining room table. It has, it has, um, it has overtaken. It is, it is officially an occupation. My my mail, unopened mail, is officially, illegally occupying uh, the dining room territories. This is from uh, Shame and Secrets, and there's just a, part of this that I wanted to read. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Trickster. She is a bisexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And um, she, she has a sister who um, is extremely gaslighting and um, really unhealthy and toxic um, and abusive and so to the question, uh, any positive experiences with your abusers, meaning her sister, she writes, no, uh, I'm so confused about how I should feel about my sister. People tell me to love, that this is a normal sister behavior and that we won't um, always get along. This is just how siblings are with one another. But I'm so tired of people saying that. I don't think the way my sister tries to manipulate me is usual of lo- loving siblings. This isn't teasing, I don't think. And it, it and it does not sound like teasing. It's abusive. Uh, I always think she's going to grow up, but she never changes. She's super sweet to me one minute, like a, a lure, but then unloads the minute she has me hooked. Maybe I should stop thinking that she has changed. Uh, darkest thoughts. I sometimes think how great it would be if my sister died. I feel so guilty, but if my sister died, I wouldn't feel. I would feel. I wouldn't feel so much happier. But if my sister died, I wouldn't feel so much happier. I'm. I'm confused. There. Um. I'm afraid what will happen if she dies before me and I attend her funeral. I'm afraid I won't feel sad and that I will have nothing good to say about her. Um, Do not feel guilty about that. Do not feel guilty about that. And don't run from the sadness of of that. You know, feel that sadness that you have with her and talk to someone about it who can handle uh, a heavy conversation and uh, who, who speaks the quote unquote language of the heart. And I think that will that will help and start to set some boundaries with your with your sister. And maybe it means cutting contact, but that does not mean you're a bad person. It means you're you're loving yourself in a way that's that's uh, loving but firm. And honestly, if she's abusive, that's loving to her. To give to give consequences to an abusive person is the most loving thing that you can do. They won't be able to see it at the time. They may never see it, but it it increases the chance that that person will realize the way that they're living is unsustainable if they want to have connections with other human beings. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Jay. And she writes, For as long as I can remember, my father has always been open and comfortable, showing affection and true love for his kids through touch. It has never been of a sexual nature, and elsewhere in the world, I would describe him as being uncomfortable with physical contact with other people, i.e., kissing or hugging hello. Sometimes when we are out somewhere together, he will put his hand on the back of my neck and give a slightly awkward, slightly massaging squeeze for 10 or perhaps as much as 30 seconds. In this moment, I feel safe and loved and supported by him. My hope for my romantic life is to find someone who understands the importance of touch and not just in a sexual scenario, but in the silent communication of all the things my father was and still does share with me. That's beautiful. And and I I really wanted to, to, to share that because um, I feel like um, with all the inappropriate stuff that we read on the podcast, all the inappropriate touching between um, people, people, um, to To remember that touching is and can be a fucking awesome thing when it's, there's no objectification going on. And um, yeah, that's just love that. I love that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Marvin. And uh, he is bisexual. He's in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, never been sexually abused, never been physically abused, never been emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes find that while driving, I can't stop thinking about what it would be like to not stop for a pedestrian or biker, but usually only when I'm tired or need a cigarette. Darkest secrets. No one knows that I am gay or at least sexually and emotionally interested in men not even my girlfriend of many years. I repressed my homosexual feelings and urges early in adolescence and didn't have them come up again until I was a year into a perfectly happy relationship with a girl. We started dating in high school, and now as I reach the end of my bachelor's degree, I often feel as though I'm going to burst with not only repressed emotions, but with anxiety that my girlfriend will find out that I have feelings for guys. Though I at times want to I uh, want so much to break it off with her and opportunities have come up where I could initiate a breakup. I think of the good times we've had and how emotionally tied we are and cannot do anything but fix the problem to ensure she is happy with me. While I want to experience the world of the feelings I have, I hate myself for feeling like I may leave a lifetime of happiness and a traditional family with my girlfriend for something so shamed by everyone in my family. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I often fantasize about guys I see in the in the university library. When I go to study, I look for a spot by a guy I find attractive, so I can fantasize in between studying i imagine i follow him into the restroom and stand at the urinal next to him and once he pulls his dick out i come from behind and grab it and whisper in his ear how hot i think he is i kneel on the floor and bring him so much pleasure with my mouth before letting him bend me over and fuck me right there in the restroom in the middle of the day sharing this makes me feel somewhat uncomfortable and even though it is anonymous because homosexuality is so shamed in my family and i think of anyone if anyone knew i wanted these things they would hate me and remind me that i can't be happy with the normal life of heteronormativity that's a big word you are in college uh, i also feel a slight amount of shame for wanting something i've been told is disgusting uh what if anything do you wish for to come to terms with my sexuality and for it to be accepted by those in my life that i love you know my first thought is it uh, they will probably Maybe or probably never accept it, but you can accept your sexuality. And that is that. That is the mission that is on your plate, my friend. Uh, have you shared these things with other, others? I've shared my sexuality with one gay friend who is my support system as of right now. I feel somewhat like a burden on them because they are the only person I can talk to about these issues, but they are wonderful and are always so supportive. Um, You might ask them. You might ask them, you know, I'm getting this feeling that I'm becoming a burden on you. Um, Maybe try to expand your support network, Um, but that's fantastic that you have that person. And um, yeah, God, I read survey after survey after survey from people whose families are so homophobic and it just, the pressure they feel. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down a small sense of relief to letting this do to letting this all out and seeing it written on my screen it feels in order instead of a jumbled mass of thoughts inside my head building up pressure and threatening to burst at any second with either extreme sadness or extreme anger thank you so much for for sharing that i didn't realize when i put the um the surveys together for today that we've got a nice uh, a nice theme going um, let's see, this is from the rarely filled out, uh, memorable vacation arguments. And, uh, this is filled out by Akudla, uh, which is a nickname for people that listen to the, um, uh, walking the room podcast. He's in his thirties and he writes, my wife and I got married in Hawaii. We had some friends there and a bunch of our family and friends came for the wedding Uh, A few days after the wedding, we were invited to get together at my friend's girlfriend's family's house. And in parentheses, he writes, there has to be a better way to say that. We went, although my wife was on the fence about going, probably due to the fact that she is socially awkward sometimes and an introvert like me. We ended up going, and it was on the other side of the island over an hour's drive. Uh, The party was at a family's house, and it seemed like the entire neighborhood was there. There was a live band. People were eating, drinking, smoking. There were elderly people and young children. We mostly sat and ate and felt a little awkward, but everyone was very nice. My friend told me that they had a room for us to sleep in, and my wife did not want to sleep there. Driving back to the hotel was not an option since it was too late to drive that far. She wanted to sleep in the car. I was very upset by how inflexible she was being. To me, it was not all that big of a deal to sleep over at someone's house, especially since we had the privacy of a separate room. I've done it many times with my extended family. After some quiet bickering, I told my friend that we would just sleep in the car, and he was insistent that we sleep in the room. We did, me angry at her and her too uncomfortable with the situation to sleep. We got up the next morning early to watch the sun rise over the ocean. Still a rift between us. We drove for over an hour, uh, on the side of the island in tense silence. For the first time in our relationship, I felt trapped, heightened by the fact that we just got married days before. I couldn't understand how inflexible she was being, why she couldn't articulate it so we could just discuss it. And I began to think of the other experiences uh, her rigidity would cause us to miss out on. Whenever I got angry before, I always toyed with the idea of just walking away from the whole relationship. And now I couldn't do that. The fact that I no longer had that avenue of thought available to me further spurred my anger. We drove on, and the rift between us began to lessen slightly. Then we stopped by a botanical garden on the seaside that was either closed or ignored and had sex in an isolated corner. Everything was pretty much fine after that. I so much wish that somebody would have popped up while you guys were fucking and said, hey, take it to the car. Wouldn't that have just been a beautiful, ironic, or appropriate uh, end to the day? I got to tell you, there is there is nothing like a vacation argument between people who are committed either by blood relation or marriage because uh, it's like every annoying thing that person does gets amplified because you're like I got to fucking deal with this the rest of my life. I'm going to try to change that person. Um and I think people's insecurities when when we get out of our comfort zone away from home. I know for me when I was up in Toronto last weekend, I called my wife at 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 one point and I said, I'm not doing well. I feel so invisible. I was at a Starbucks in Toronto and um and just everybody had somebody to talk to, and I just felt and I know it was ridiculous. I know it wasn't the truth, but that's how i felt and After I said that to my wife i felt I felt better and then um i uh I got a bite to eat with somebody um later that night and um and we had a great conversation, and it was uh it was nice, and I went back to my hotel room, and I didn't, I didn't feel as alone. But that, that feeling, um, I think sometimes being on the road can just, um, even though I loved being in Toronto, it's like one of my favorite cities. Um, all right, here we go. This is Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Captain Midnight. Uh, he is straight, in his twenties, raised in a stable and safe environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, When I was a kid, an older boy, maybe four years my senior, pulled down his pants and asked me to kiss his penis. I remember this so vividly because there was a single drop of urine just sort of idling there. That penis forever leers over all my insecurities, and I've only ever told one person. I'm not sure if that counts as sexual abuse, but I knew it felt wrong. It sounds like sexual abuse to me. And the fact that he told me uh, if I didn't do what he asked, then he would beat the shit out of me. Oh yeah, that's definitely sexual abuse. Reaffirms the notion that it was abuse. Um, uh, he's been emotionally abused. Uh, an ex-girlfriend constantly debased me with insults and manipulating, manipulated me into believing that the problem was with me. She was constantly saying things like nobody will ever love you. Boy, that is the greatest hit of the abusive, uh, partner. Nobody will ever love you. If you are in a relationship and any and your partner has ever said that to you, fucking leave. Fucking leave. That is the that is the family crest of the abusive partner. Um Anyway, she was constantly saying things like, nobody will ever love you, you're a waste waste of space, or I used to only use you for sex, but now you're always sleeping. I don't even have that. Um, when people asked me why I stayed with her as long as I did, I simply replied, I had nowhere else to go. And that was sad because it was completely true. Darkest thoughts. For the longest time, I was horrified that I would just somehow wake up and become a child molester. I have a nephew, and my greatest fear is that someone will steal his innocence and fuck him up emotionally. For the longest time, I thought I was the only person who had thoughts like these, but this podcast has helped me realize I am not alone, and now when I have those thoughts, I have a logical explanation that keeps me from dwelling on those foolish, obsessive thoughts. Also, in high school, I had an intense fear that I would wake up one day and be gay. Um, sexual thoughts, by the way, I think every high school person uh goes goes through that um and probably grade school as well uh sexual thoughts with other men would pop into my head and it would drive me crazy it tormented me for the longest time until finally i woke up and said if i ever look at a penis and it gives me a boner then i'll know i'm gay that's so awesome i think we got a t-shirt there Uh, i've always been sexually aroused by women and have never experimented with another man i'm not quite sure what that is all about but it isn't a problem anymore darkest secrets i was an alcoholic for a decade um i'm sorry to butt in but i gotta say if you were an alcohol if you were an alcoholic you are an alcoholic maybe you meant you were drinking alcoholically anyway um i snorted pills cocaine crystal meth and even snorted heroin once for a long time i was addicted to stealing things i was addicted to cough syrup at one time in high school i would do anything to make my friends laugh i drank my own pee once or twice for beer money uh and I've eaten my own vomit. I used to put cigarettes out all over my body. When that activity lost its allure, I would put them I wouldn't put them out, I'd just touch them to my skin and let it burn my flesh. I used to cut myself and have had multiple failed suicide attempts. I tried to slip my wrist with the blade of a pencil sharpener once, but it was too dull. After my ex girlfriend happened to see what I had done, she laughed coyly and said, Pity it wasn't sharp enough. She sounds like a keeper. I think you go back and you find her and you try to work it out. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I have an armpit fetish and a foot fetish. I love the smell of a woman's armpits right before it starts to stink, that natural smell. Sharing this makes me feel normal. Uh, I want to high five you on that one. I do kind of like that smell too. Supposedly, Napoleon used to tell—was uh, it Josephine that was his, uh, his wife or lover or whatever—he um, would be gone for like two weeks, and he would beg her to not uh, wash when when he was away. Uh, I, I, I like that smell too. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the feet, but um, I know a lot of people are. Um, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I forgive you, all of you. Please forgive me. Um, I'd like closure. What, if anything, do you wish for that my anxiety wouldn't become so overpowering that it causes me to step away from whatever it is that I'm doing? I wish my anxiety wouldn't keep me from sitting through all my classes at the college. I wish I didn't have the intense fear of a panic attack manifesting itself at any moment, always lingering in the back of my mind. I wish I didn't have to deal with my mood swings. I wish Depakote and my other meds didn't fuck up my teeth and make my gums bleed. And I wish my girlfriend was able to get health insurance so she didn't have to order her meds from Canada and wonder if they are exactly what the packet says they are. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, uh, with the one closest to me. She has encouraged me to be open and and is the one who told me about this site and podcast. She accepts me for me and all the fucked up shit from my past. It seems like it's too good to be true at times. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Grateful that there is a place like this for others like me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Thank you for encouraging me to talk about these things and for not making me feel like a two-headed boy under the tent at the visiting freak show. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Um, this is um, this is filmed out by a, a kid uh, who calls himself Octavius the Octopus and he is gay and he's between uh, 12 and 15 years old and um, this was a struggle in a sentence survey but if, I, I wanted to read it in the heavier part of our surveys because it is very heavy um About his depression, he writes, uh, It's the kind where some days I can't get out of bed knowing what I've done and how dirty I am inside. About his anxiety, panic attacks. I did what? Oh God, I did that? I'm going to be sick. No, wait, I didn't eat enough to throw up. I need a screwdriver. About alcoholism and drug addiction. My dad is proudest when I can drink as hard as he does. About his anorexia. Guys don't have anorexia. I just don't eat so I can feel more alert. It makes me smarter and better. This isn't a disorder. It's an accomplishment. My ribs are a testament to my dedication. About his love addiction, sex is love or it's close enough for me. Uh, about his sex addiction. I can make you want me even though I'm underage. I've been getting people better than you since I was 12. I can own you and use you and you can't hurt me, but you can want me and if you play your cards right, I'll pick you. The more you say you don't want me, the more I promise I can have you on top of me by the end of the night about being a sex crime victim. I don't even remember how many times my uncles threw me around, but all my anger turns to hatred for my father and what he knew, and the hate gets so big I have to hurt myself just to get it out of my head. Uh, My dad thinks if we drink together and go out to bars together, I'll forgive him for letting my uncles fuck me, but instead getting me into bars just gives me a chance to do stupid things that I'll be terrified of the next day but feel great at the time snapshot from his life if i go to a therapist or something they'll put me in a foster home where i'll be raped so i'll just keep throwing whatever's in this drink back and then i'll realize it's empty so i'll get up to get more and then it's morning the next day and fuck school i don't need to learn i need to unlearn everything that is some of the heaviest shit i have read in the three years of doing this podcast and i just want to send you the biggest warmest hug buddy And I don't know what to say other than there are people in the world that will love you, who won't abuse you. And I don't know what it's like or what to tell a kid who is afraid of going into a foster home but is being abused at home. I don't know what to say because I've heard about bad foster home experiences. Um, Maybe post in the uh in the forum and um if we get some mental health professionals who have some uh some stuff to weigh in with we can we can have them post underneath it or maybe email me um but we're sending you a big hug buddy hang in there you don't have to live in that shit fucking environment for much longer and you got to heal those wounds Um, This is an awfulsome moment filled out by uh, a woman, a girl. Uh, She's uh, 18, calls herself Perdita the Penguin. And uh, her awfulsome moment, she writes, My birthday was on the 15th. My father is a cynical, bitter human being who was verbally and emotionally abusive to everyone in his life from day one. He frequently under... I'm just imagining from day one, literally, he came out of his mom's vagina and went, "Gee," holding his nose. Oh, sweet mother of God. Sweet release. Uh, He frequently undercuts any accomplishment anyone mentions and goes on at length about how hard his own life was and cannot compliment anyone. We went out for Chinese... uh, Went out for Chinese for dinner, and I could see he was about to make my mother cry. So I started firing back for the first time without regret. Any other time I've defended myself or others, I felt guilty about it and stopped after one comment and apologized. Not the night of the 15th. It was nonstop jokes about my dad being so old he remembered the invention of the horseless carriage, how even if I stopped college right now, I would still have more education than his dumb ass implying he got passing grades in college english because he banged the teacher and my brother joined in perhaps encouraged by the fact everyone at the table was laughing except my father after years of him telling us things like we're mistakes and we're the reason he had heart problems not the genetics that's a huge portion of my family we cut loose highlights included my brother telling my dad he should have used a condom uh, my loudly instructing my dad to sound out the menu when it turns out he'd forgotten his glasses. And both my brother and I singing on the way home to the tune of, let it go, fuck it all, fuck it all, don't give a shit anymore, fuck it all, fuck it all, flip the table, screw you all. I don't take this bullshit anymore, I don't give a fuck. When we got home and he turned to pound on our mother, my brother, being six foot eight and muscular as hell, put himself between them and told my dad, real men don't pick on women. After I chimed in, Dad's a man? When did that happen? Our dad left in a huff. As his parting shot of drama, he tore up his birthday card to me and said he wouldn't be getting me anything for Christmas. I said, So I guess it'll just be family this Christmas then. Shrugged, turned to my brother and my mom and said, So, who wants cake? My mom, of course, apologized to her beloved psychological and verbal abuser because he has her trained to do that at this point, but I don't feel remotely guilty. I talked with my brother about it, and he's agreed that it's the best birthday anyone in this house has ever had. I'm done with my dad waging verbal warfare on the people he claims to love and being expected to apologize even when I'm on good behavior. I don't care about him anymore. He's not a real dad to his children, and he's not a real man, and I will not feel bad about defending myself, having fun, and being who I am. As I told him on the 15th, I don't take this bullshit anymore. I'm sure this makes me a selfish person, but again, I don't care. It's so liberating, like a giant weight has lifted from my shoulders. I still haven't apologized and I don't plan to ever. I have worth as a person and he doesn't deserve me getting upset. Uh, he doesn't deserve me getting upset because he just doesn't matter as a human being. Unhealthy view of things? Probably. Am I enjoying life more? Definitely. Thank you for sharing that um, this is shame and Secret survey, and this one's heavy um because the other ones have been so light. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh stormy. She's straight. she's in her twenties. I think we've done um surveys by her before. Uh, She identifies as straight, mostly, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say, having read this, that it's more than a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, uh, She was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Uh, She writes, I was molested by my mother's boyfriend when I was a teenager. I always thought that the abuse was was what caused many of my problems. But through working on what I now know is my PTSD, I realized that my trauma was... Uh, in fact uh was the fact was in the fact that my mother continued to see him even though he no longer lived with us, and no one in my family wanted to talk about it. I had a caseworker who did nothing other than make sure I was alive, and I went to court to testify alone. God, I was fourteen years old, and no one came with me. Herbert's Herbert's crying outside the door right now. Um, I've cried twice in therapy when I get to the part of the story where I remember that the social worker did not even put her hand on my shoulder as I told the judge what had happened to me. No one asked me why I was alone. That is the definition of heartbreaking. Have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Um... Never physically abused, but my parents did not do a very good job of letting me be a kid. There were not many boundaries on what they would tell me. Uh, My first real boyfriend was also very controlling and jealous. Uh, any positive experiences with your abusers? Of course, they're my parents and I'm an only child. This is the first time in my life where I've created some distance from the both of them in order to just think about myself. It feels selfish, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to survive what I'm currently going through if I had to put my energy into parenting them as well. Uh, darkest thoughts. I've gotten overthinking messed up thoughts. There are much worse things in the world. Darkest secrets. Darkest secrets. I have herpes. I still can't say it without tearing up or stuttering. I can read it, type it, but but saying it hurts too much. I've learned so much about the virus now that I know I have it. I did not know that it is basically never a simple situation. Many people will never know when or how they got it, although I'm pretty certain of how I did. Also, the types and locations make for so many different situations. I have herpes simplex virus type one, genitally. I basically have had one cold sore outbreak on my genitals and my entire life has changed because of it. The stigma my kind of herpes has because it is below the belt. I hope people know that it kills souls. Physically, I am more than fine. My antibody levels were still low four months after the outbreak. I do CrossFit, pole dancing, ride my bike, but emotionally, I am so unhealthy. I almost killed myself this summer. Hopefully, Zoloft will help. Um, she doesn't really have sexual fantasies anymore Um, uh, she writes it's hard to think of having sex with anyone since I would have to add the quote talk in there before we engaged in anything what if anything do you wish for to not have herpes have you shared these things with others I've shared it with a few people the person who I'm fairly certain gave it to uh, I gave it to B still says he is negative. Who gave it to me still says uh, he is negative for type 2. He knows the kind I have and has refused to get tested for it. My ex, a different person from the one who gave it to me, who was so supportive at first, ended up telling one of his close friends, which ended any chance of the two of us working through our issues aside from this. Uh, I no longer tell anyone besides medical professionals. How do you feel after writing these things down? The same. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I do not think I could be of much help besides just sharing my story. Uh right now, knowing that other people have gone or are going through something similar does not help because there is no one in my life who is or has gone through this. Sure there are there are some sure there are people in the world but no one around me. I'm the only one of all of my friends. I'm coming to terms with the fact that I will not have a romantic partner. Maybe people can find comfort in knowing that it is possible to come to terms with that. Uh, First of all, I want to give you a hug. Um, And you've been through so, so much. And I just want to say that I know a half dozen people that live with herpes who are in committed relationships. So people can, I'm not saying it's easy. I don't know what it's like. And I don't pretend to know what it's like, but don't, don't write that off. You know, maybe there are support groups. Maybe there are um, online dating places or things, but um, I hope you heal from that stuff that was done to you as a kid. Cause I think that's, that's a lot um that's just uh that abandonment by your by your mom and that fucking social worker. Oh god, I hope that social worker quits her fucking job. I'd like to say fuck one more time. This is a happy moment filled out by um A woman who calls herself missing my stargazer and we've read surveys from her before she's a widow and she's in her 20s and this is her happy moment and she writes I'm not sure if this is more of an awful or happy moment I think it may fall somewhere in between but I'll share it here I'm a 29 year old uh, widow, her husband died in a car accident, who belongs in an online support group slash message board for uh, specifically for young widows. About a month ago, I had dinner with a woman I've gotten to know through the group. We both lost our husbands unexpectedly, her about six months before me. And we were both in their mid, we were both in, they were both in their mid thirties when they died. They were both huge music fans. Who had really similar tastes and favorites one of those shared favorites was the flaming lips they were my husband's absolute favorite um and we spent a little bit of time discussing how hard it's been for us to listen to them now i had actually just seen them at a summer music festival a few weeks prior and while it was an incredibly difficult and emotional set to listen to it was something i felt i had to do for my husband like i was seeing them on his behalf i ended up breaking down three times during the set Um, One of those times was, of course, during the performance of their song, Do You Realize. That song made me cry the first time I heard it. Um, It turns out that the other widow has also had a really hard time with that specific song for very similar reasons because it reminds her of her husband. It's just too overwhelming. Anyway, we keep talking about music and at one point joke that if there is some sort of afterlife, we hope our husbands have found each other so they can talk about all their shared favorite bands and compare notes about all the concerts they were probably unknowingly at together. Uh, I'm a pretty committed non-believer, but I still sometimes like to entertain the possibility that there's a little piece of my husband's consciousness out there somewhere pulling strings and sending signals. And this other widow and I both agreed that if our husbands could still communicate with us, if they could still somehow send us messages and signs that they were still out there somewhere listening and watching over and loving us, they'd let us know through music. So we laugh and cry and talk about things only other young widows can really understand for over two hours before we say goodbye, goodnight and part ways. She heads for her car, I head to the train and we make our way home. When I get home, I log onto the Young Widow Support Group message board to see if there are any interesting new posts and see that I have a new private message. It's from the Young Widow I just had dinner with. She tells me that when she got in her car, turned the radio on, what was the next song? The Flaming Lips, Do You Realize? So maybe our husbands are friends now. Maybe they've run into each other and hang out and talk about music, wherever they both are. And maybe they hear us and are waiting for us. And maybe that was their way of letting us know. It's silly and it's not something I actually actually believe most of the time, but it's enough to put a little smile on my face as the tears roll down my cheeks. Thank you for that. It's beautiful. This is uh this last one is an awful moment filled out by um I would classify this as a happy moment, but uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Norse by Norse West, and he is 17, and he writes, After having run through every excuse in the book and having had nightmares about my extremely Christian roommate finding out I was gay, I came in to find him crying his eyes out. His cell phone snapped in half on the floor. I asked him what was going on, and he blurted out that nothing had worked, and eventually he admitted he was gay. I spotted pills in his backpack and realized he had been considering killing himself. So I did the logical thing and threw his backpack out the window, we live on the fourth floor, and told him my own sexuality and how there were worse things to be. After our conversation turned into a screaming match and back into an actual conversation, I told him I and everyone we knew would rather have him alive and gay than dead and gone. When we went to go get his backpack, he asked me if that meant I was going to actually start eating now. Turns out I may have hidden my sexuality, but the fact I'm over 70 pounds underweight didn't go over his head. When I protested I was better off this way and admitted I didn't feel like I deserved food, he told me he'd rather have me weigh more and still be here than be dead. I was so moved I ended up crying and we ended up hugging on the front lawn of our dorm. When someone walked by yelling out faggots, we both laughed like crazy people. I still haven't gotten treatment for my anorexia, and he hasn't come out to anyone else, but when I think about that moment, I really believe we can make it through this shitstorm that is college, so long as we stay friends. That is a hall of fucking fame moment. That is... Ah. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for filling these surveys out, helping to remind me that I'm not alone and how much love there is in the world. Yeah, and how much pain and fucked up shit there is, but... You know, without the sadness, the joy wouldn't feel as good. Without the pain, the comfort wouldn't feel as good. And, uh, yeah, I just, sometimes I'm left speechless by the beautiful things that you guys share, just speechless. So I hope if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, this last two hours has reminded you that, that there is hope and that, uh, you're not the only one going through whatever it is that is making you feel hopeless and alone. You just need to reach out for help, as scary as that is. And um, just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.